Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering the coronavirus. So we're recording this podcast from the Columbia Journalism School, which is at Columbia University, which today, Monday, is closed to classes because of fears of the coronavirus. Students aren't having classes Monday and Tuesday, and then the rest of this week, they're going to do classes remotely. And it's just one tiny example of the incredible sort of dislocation that's being caused by this virus around the world. The stock market today plunged or plummeted or whatever other verb you want to use. It fell dramatically. Italy is basically locked down as a country as of today. And in the United States, this thing is just growing and growing and growing and growing. And what we're really interested in is how the media is doing in covering the crisis and what it could be doing better. I'm thrilled to be joined today by two people who bring a very different perspective, but invaluable to this question. I'm joined by Elizabeth Rosenthal, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News and a former New York Times correspondent who also happens to have worked as an ER physician before becoming a journalist. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. And Samantha Pack, who's senior editor of the Kirkland Reporter, which is a weekly newspaper in the community in Washington where the Life Care Nursing Home is located has been one of the epicenters of the virus in the U.S. Samantha, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you all both for coming on. Elizabeth, let's start with you from a kind of broad national perspective. We talked right before we came on about frustrations that, that I hear a lot of from readers of journalism about this. I know that's a broad sweep, but that people people still feel, as much coverage as this is now getting, still feel that they don't have a handle on where we are, how scared they should be, precisely what they should be doing about this. Do you hear the same kind of complaints? Yeah, I hear the same complaints. And I, I a part of the problem is, look, this is a fast-moving, complicated scientific problem where the data is often being delivered through a political lens. So journalists are getting really imperfect information. They're getting com- some kind of alarming statistics. And I think we all need to take a deep breath and say, okay, how do we put this statistic in context? And that's for, to do that properly, you need to both understand the science and the politics. So, for example, you know, we, we heard last week the WHO saying 3.4% death rate. Everyone is like, wow, that makes, you know, that's an alarming headline. Well, yes, but the context is that's among people who are mostly in a hospital with a respiratory infection, maybe in intensive care. We don't know what the denominator is. So that statistic to throw it out there without the context creates a lot of alarm. Now, I when I say that to people, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, lower down in the story, we explain that. But a lot of people, as we all know, just read the headlines and the first two graphs and go um, and, and say to their, their, their friends, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, 3.4% death rate. And so that's, that's a problem. And what do you chalk this up to? Is it, I mean, uh, and we, we know and have written about and even laughed about the kind of innumeracy problem uh, in journalism where, you know, we're right brain people and we see numbers and our heads explode? Or is there more, is there, is there something deeper about the way journalists view science or how do you, how do you understand why this keeps happening? Well, because we I, saw the same thing, by the way, in reporting on polling in elections. Yeah. 
Well, I think, you know, dramatic numbers are attractive to journalists, right? Because you're at, you tell your editor 3.4% death rate, and they're like, ooh, that's a story. Mm. You know, the subtext isn't as interesting, and it's harder to convey. I would say, you know, as a as a medical journalist or science journalist, you know, I think the more time you have, if you have a long print story, it's easier to do that. In a three-minute TV news segment, that's a really hard thing to do. And what is your level of frustration here? Is it that do you just do, do you wake up every day and I and think I can't believe how terrible the coverage in general is, or do you think it, for the most part people are doing a pretty decent job with the information they have? I think people are trying really hard with the information. I, I mean, the, the people I fault first are the politicians and the the experts who are sometimes assume that the, their audience is just going to understand that, you know, I say 3.4% death rate, but I don't mean that that's what, you mm-hmm. know, the risk for most people. So I think experts have to be much more attuned to, um, you know, how people hear the numbers they put out. But also um, politicians, as we've seen both in China, the U.S., Iran, a lot of the stats or non-stats are put out for political reasons. Mm. You know, our president, Donald Trump, says, you know, oh, I don't want that boat to dock because I like low numbers. Mm. Well, (sighs) low numbers are not a good thing at the moment because we want more people to be tested. Mm -hmm. And if more people are tested, those numbers are going to rise. So it's, you know, there, it takes two to tango. It's both sides of the equation that are um, leading to what I think of as a lot of very flawed reporting. You know, for example, now you could say in New York State, right, oh, the case has tripled, you know. Well, does, is that bad or good? It sounds bad, but actually it's a good thing because we're out there testing now and finding mm. more cases. I, I mean, I, I have this gut feel that that people who follow this closely know a lot more about what's happening and know a lot more about what we're in for in the next week or two weeks than we're being told. Is that just paranoia on my part? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the epidemiologists I've spoken to think that, you know, as we get a better sense of the denominator, you know, what we see at the beginning of every epidemic, and I I covered SARS in China Mm -hmm. um, for the New York Times. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you you hear about the worst cases. So you don't have a sense of the denominator. So you're basically seeing the tip of the iceberg, which is scary, even though what's under the water is probably not that bad. Young children, we know, can get this virus, but don't even show symptoms. So, you know, we're seeing the people who are really sick now. And we don't really know. So as reporters, it's really hard to say what that denominator is because we need the scientists and the politicians to go out there and provide that number. And right now we don't have it. So I think most epidemiologists think as we know more about this outbreak, the uh, fatality rates will go down. Maybe Mm -hmm. it'll be like the seasonal flu or maybe even a little less. But we won't know that until over time. Which is sort of... Around 1%? Uh, 0.1%. 0.1%. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you do have examples like uh, the the nursing home in Kirkland where we know already this is really bad for people who are old, older and, uh, you know, have underlying medical conditions. So I give a lot of credit to the local journalists who are seeing something and going like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah. Because they are in many ways are um, 
canary in the coal mine. Yeah. And, and, you know, are there other nursing homes in other parts of the country that are experiencing a lot of people going to the hospital with pneumonia? But mm-hmm. we just don't know about it, A, because the, there's local journalism has been hollowed out in those communities, and because, you know, good thing the University of Washington has been really in front of the rest of the country in testing, so they could test these patients to say, oh, this is that new coronavirus. So, Well, well I mean, I, you, you serve up a perfect transition to talk to Samantha, but I want to ask you one more point about this mm-hmm. thing that you just said, which is, you know, we don't know until people report, and, I, and, and this does sort of bring us back into thinking about the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. where it took a while, where, you know, you had people showing up in emergency rooms with symptoms, common symptoms around the country, and it took a while for people to sort of connect the dots. Yeah, and and I think you know there there were many similarities in some. I was an ER doctor during uh-huh. during the HIV AIDS uh, era in uh-huh. in New York City, and yes, it did take a while for people to connect the dots. This is somewhat different because we pretty quickly understood in China that this was a new coronavirus. Mm. I mean, amazingly, by you know, by the end of December, it was sequenced. So we knew there was something new out there, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, again, I want to, you know, give kudos to the University of Washington scientists because they saw that. And a lot of people were like, oh, that's in China. It's not going to come here. They were like, you know, it could come here because there's a lot of travel. And they started ramping up and testing and developing testing mm-hmm. really early on. So I think part of the reason we have such good information about that Kirkland outbreak is because both the local journalists were on the ball and the local uh, scientists were on the ball. Mm. And that's pretty amazing. So, Samantha, thank you for your patience. Uh, We've been talking about you. What do you remember about when the notion of of the virus coming to Kirkland sort of first first surfaced? Well, I... I would say initially one of the other communities, one of the high schools closed for two days. A relative of a staff member had traveled internationally, and then they got sick when they came back. And so that high school closed for two days, Bothell High School. I mean, we had the first case in the U.S. here in, not in Kirkland, but up in Snohomish County, which is the county just north of King County where Kirkland is. And um, we had the first U.S. case. And so, so that Saturday, like, Early afternoon, late morning was when the first report of a coronavirus death came out, and and then we learned it was at a nursing home. So how big is the newsroom there? There are three editors, and in our newsroom, um, we have seven reporters. We cover not just Kirkland, but we cover about 10 communities on the east side. We have seven papers. Uh-huh. How have you gone about organizing yourself? Dory has become massive. How do you, how have you done this? So last week was, I'm not going to lie, it was very chaotic. It was like the busiest I'd seen the newsroom in a long time, like if not ever. After a while, we kind of designated people, you know, our schools and um, our schools reporter, she kind of took things that were school related because we had one school district close schools completely for two weeks. And then um, we have another reporter who He's kind of taken on the role of like whenever there's press conferences that are related to you know, the life care folks or the life care families or public health or the governor, mm-hmm. people have kind of like leaned into their beats. And so anything that's kind of like how businesses are affected, 
we've given it to our business reporter, you mm-hmm. know, if he's able to take it. We also have a South, a South End, like South King County, like news group, and we also share stories. Let me ask you about something that Elizabeth was talking about, just about the difficulty in getting accurate information from official sources on this. What have you found mm-hmm. there with local officials or with officials from the nursing home? It was a little difficult at first, but then I think, um, you know, the, the, the Washington Department of Health, they, on their website, they have a, you know, a coronavirus section now, and they have been updating it daily at a certain time, like 11 o'clock in the morning. And they update the numbers of cases and deaths and that kind of thing. You know, Washington State is known as having a really good health department. Um, So in some Mm -hmm. ways, we are quite lucky that it came through a state, you know, because many states are not nearly as well prepared. They don't have the public health attention and capacity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the federal numbers have been flopping around much more than the Washington state numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the interesting things to me is many journalists now, instead of looking at the CDC website for the latest numbers, are looking at a website that's collated by Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Now, that to me Mm -hmm. is a problem because you want your officials to give you the official numbers, but instead the the rollout of (laughs) testing has been very chaotic so that, um, and and one of the things that I think makes the reporting sometimes problematic is that the information we're getting is fluctuating all over the place. That's getting better. You know, I, again, what I observed when I was a reporter in China uh, covering SARS is that when there's a vacuum of information and when the public and reporters don't trust official statistics, that's when rumors go wild. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of that here. What have you noticed about the way the national press has been covering the story there versus what you see on the ground? I mean, if you what what are the sort of like either stereotypes that people fall into or misconceptions that you've seen, especially from reporters who are covering it from not from on the ground, from somewhere else? The national news tends to focus just on the numbers. You know, they have to, and they understand because they have a national audience and People want to know, like, what's happening near them or what's happening in their state. And so I understand it from that point. But for us, like, on the local end, you know, we we also are looking at, you know, how is this affecting the local communities? You know, like, when everything, you know, all these local events have been canceled or postponed, people are working from home, kids are home from school. Like, how is that going to affect, you know, the local economy? How is that going to affect small businesses like yeah we're you know the east side which is like the area in east king county just across lake washington from seattle we have yeah we have google we have you know microsoft is right in the next city over t-mobile is in the other city over so we have all these big tech companies um that employ a lot of people like tens of thousands of people but we also have small businesses and mom and pop shops and you know like if they're closing or if they're open and no one's out you know, because everyone's quarantined or no one wants to go out because they're trying to be safe. Like, how is that going to affect these businesses and like the nonprofits? Those are the things that we are starting to look at this week. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, you talked about this earlier about the obsession with numbers and the coverage of this. 
Yeah, well, obsession with numbers that we know, and but there are a whole lot of numbers that we don't know. Yeah. I think this is a, a serious story. There, there are lessons to be learned. It's, it's somewhat frightening. But um, I, I sometimes feel like we as journalists, every time we put up a map of COVID-19 and where it's spreading and where people have died, we should simultaneously put up a map of, you know, influenza and where it spread, which is in all 50 states, mm. and how many people have died, which is now close to 20,000 people um, this year. Not not so much to dismiss the, the COVID-19 worries, but to keep things in proportion. And it, it somewhat frustrates me. And I think this is what you were talking about in terms of people don't know how to react. You know, they tell me, oh, I'm not taking the subway because of COVID-19, but they haven't even gotten a flu shot when they know that influenza is a real and present danger to them. Mm-hmm. It's how to create a sense of urgency without sending people into this frantic panic, which is counterproductive. And I think, you know, you're asking, well, people don't know how to react. And I think we are at a stage of an outbreak where that's a real question. You know, I get this from my reporters. Should I get on a plane? Should we go to this conference? You know, we sent people to NICAR last week. I I know some news organizations decided not to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think everyone... Uh, has to take a deep breath and think about, I I always tell people, kind of go one up from your normal level of influenza precautions, you know, and that involves the hand washing, be careful about, you know, what's called social distancing. I wouldn't go into a mosh pit right now, Mm -hmm. but, you know, most of life (laughs) is... Normally you would. Yeah, of course I would. (laughs) (laughs) But most of life isn't a mosh pit, even the subway in New York. I I am taking the subway, but I think you have to be a little more cautious of the people next to you. um, And also... Consider it, um, you know, we as Americans tend to go to work, send our kids to school when they're sick. You shouldn't be doing that in in the context of, of the current outbreak. And I think, you know, this will pass. And once we know much more about this virus and this outbreak, we can be much more rational about it. But you brought up the, the, the issue of HIV AIDS and early in the AIDS um, outbreak, there was like, oh, is it safe to go to the gym, yeah. you know? Well, yes, it is. But likewise, you know, a lot of doctors, and I was one of the young doctors at the time, were told, oh, don't worry, you can't get it from needle Mm -hmm. sticks. And that turned out not to be true. So, you know, any new virus, I think we have to be uh, cautious and respectful that viruses can be bad, but they can also be pretty, you know, ho-hum, another cold virus in the winter, and we don't yet know where this falls. Um, So. One, this question, finally, for both of you. I mean, you, you talked earlier about you know the the politicians sort of spinning the data, and I mean, I gotta say that that's one genre of story that I'm not that patient with. Like, I, I don't have a lot of appetite for like how Trump is screwing this up. I mean, I have no doubt he's screwing it up, but I just don't want to read that over and over again, right? Right now, I mean, what is your read on that, and how we should be playing that? Yeah, it it bothers me, you know, how do I put this? Because I think our president has had a history of telling lots of mistruths. Yeah. There's a tendency to just say, to, to see everything through a political lens. So I think one thing that I, I, I've heard a lot from scientists in the last week is, you know, last week the president, when he heard that 3.4 percent, 
5% figure said, I have a hunch it's going to be much lower. Now, he was right. Uh, most epidemiologists <laughs> have that same hunch, but they have that hunch based on data, not on wanting it to be yeah. true. Yeah. So I think, you know, to just say, oh, this is nonsense because President Trump said it yeah. is is. And there were a lot of stories that were like, oh, you know, um, it, it must be wrong yeah. that it's one percent because, you know, yeah. so I think. Too many politicians are only talking about this through a political lens, and that means too many journalists are only talking about it through a political lens, when really it's about science. Samantha, have you seen that effort to politicize the story in Washington? Maybe a little bit, but not too much. I mean, for us, I mean, we had um, Vice President Pence. He visited last week. We also focus on getting the human side of that and how our the people are going to be affected, not just by the illness itself, but I guess just called the aftermath. And, you know, so that's the more of the type of reporting that we are now focused on now that the the breaking news portion of it has stabilized. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth, it doesn't sound like a terrible template to focus on the effects of this stuff as opposed to these. But what were you going to say? Yeah, no, I think it is it is good locally to focus on the effects. I mean, we're seeing the effects nationally with the stock market, right? Rational or, or not. Here at Columbia. Uh, or here at Columbia where, you know, classes are canceled, but people are still sharing um you know, red cups of Corona beer on the lawn. Uh-huh. But, um, there's, you know, there's, which are... there's a lot more people on the lawn <laughs> than there would be in any classroom right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a mosh pit out there. No. <laughs> but the good thing is you can't catch viruses very easily outside. Uh-huh. So that that's good. But I think the one thing that um, we do need some more journalism on and, and a genuine, poli- and there has been a bunch developing, genuine political part of this of this outbreak has been you know why in the US did it take so long to get these tests out there and that is a genuine question that and and part of the reason i think you don't hear more more spin from states is because the states are dealing with sick people on the ground and mm. what to tell them you know in washington this is all kind of distant and mm-hmm. far away. So th- it's much easier to spin things in Washington as just mm-hmm. a political problem. When you're a governor or a mayor, you have to deal with sick people mm-hmm. and you know, EMS workers and nurses in your hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think there's much less spin in that sense. But I think the question all the states are asking is, why did it take so long mm-hmm. to get you know, uh, federal approval to do this testing? Because the U.S. is way behind other countries mm-hmm. in that. And there's really... No good explanation or excuse, and some some of the papers have had pretty good investigations, but I think there's a lot more to be told on that. Well, thank you both. I'm sure this is something we're going to be talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's great to have you, Elizabeth. Samantha, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So you can read our ongoing coverage of corona um, and its effects and its coverage uh, by the media at CGR.org. We're also on it on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. See you next week.